Hey, welcome to the Mostly Skateboarding Podcast. I'm your host, Templeton Elliott, and I'm joined this week by Mike Munzenreiter and Patrick Kagongo. We also have a friend of the pod, Max Harrison Caldwell, on the show this week to talk about the rise of Europros, plus his article, Free Movement Skateboarding Athens for Vague Magazine. Max, back in 2019, you spent a month in Greece volunteering with free movement skateboarding, teaching kids how to skate. Uh, what inspired you to take a month out of your life to go to a foreign country and teach skateboarding? Yeah, um, thanks for having me on, first of all. As far as taking a month out, I had spent the month of March volunteering with SkatePal in Palestine last year, and that was the first kind of volunteering that I had done um, internationally, and that experience really opened my eyes to the world of skate programs. I was familiar with Skatistan, of course, that's the big one, and I was vaguely familiar with a few other organizations through going to the first Pushing Borders, but I didn't really realize how many there were, and I didn't know anything about free movement. Uh, but one of my fellow volunteers in this era was Amber Edmondson, who's the programs director for free movement. And I learned tons about skate volunteering from her. And I ended up actually interviewing her for free skate mag. Um, so through that, we had a long conversation about all the ins and outs of the kind of work she does. And I got more and more interested in it. And, uh, she told me towards the end of our time in Asira that there was only one volunteer spot left for free movement for the month of October. And I was kind of stressed out. I wanted to do it. I didn't know if I would be able to get the time off work. I didn't want to commit to it without having talked to my job. Uh, but on one of the last nights, I was like, you know what? If there's only one spot left, I'm going to claim it. And I did. And uh, a few months later, last August, <laughs> at Pushing Borders, I found out she told the same thing to the guy, Owen, who ended up being my fellow volunteer. She told him that like months later, like, yo, there's only one spot left. You got to take it. <laughs> so that was funny. Um, but at the time I had a job in the weed industry where it was pretty easy to get time off. So I was able to leave the country for months at a time. And I figured I would, I, you know, I should take advantage of that as much as possible. Um, so I had a really amazing experience in Asira in Palestine and I was eager to do more skate aid work and meet more people like Amber who were really inspiring to me. It's, it's definitely the most fulfilling kind of work that I've done. Rad. So I guess uh, my question would be, um, off the rip, uh, tell us about the kids and tell us about what your average day-to-day -day was like in working with them. Yeah, so we're doing, um, let me see, I can't remember exactly how many sessions a week. Uh, I think Owen and I were attending maybe seven sessions a week, and then there was also a, a women's session that we didn't go to, um, and we basically do like two sessions on Monday, one session on Tuesday, two sessions on Wednesday, and so on, alternating. And then we had weekends off. Um, so basically, we would show up to the camps uh, if you know for the sessions in camps, and all the kids would run out, you know, and chase our car to where we parked. And then we would do get all the kids padded up, or we would have to sign them all in first, then get all the kids padded up, do a kind of yoga warm up, do some stretching, and then have about an hour to skate before we had to take all the boards back which was never popular um <laughs> but as far as the kids go most of the kids we worked with were from syria or afghanistan um generally between about seven the oldest we saw i think was maybe 14 but most of the kids i'd say were between like seven and 12 they really didn't like the yoga warm-ups and uh, there are a few <laughs> dedicated skaters uh who were really like in there trying to learn how to ollie every time there are some kids who could ollie but for the most part kids would come because their friends were coming it was a casual social thing 
and not everyone always, you know, looked where they went or anything like that. It was a pretty chaotic, disorganized mess of uh, a lot of kids who were on boards for the first time or hadn't been skated long, all milling mm-hmm. around in the same small concrete rectangle. That's awesome. Did you notice any budding rippers? Was there anybody that sticks out? Uh, obviously, you don't have to use names, but was there anybody who just like, oh, they got potential, you know, they got a, they got a good push. You can already tell that if they keep at it, they're going to yeah go somewhere with it yeah there is um it seemed like there was kind of an age ceiling for the programs like uh and i don't think that has as much to do with the nature of skateboarding as it does to do with the nature of these kind of organized youth programs so a lot of the kids um who i had heard were really good were no longer that interested not because they didn't like skating but just because they would rather be you know standing in a circle talking with their friends away from um, (laughs) the oversight of random adults they didn't know. You know what I mean? And like, Mm. they just wanted to do something that wasn't organized. So I feel like a lot of the kids who were starting to get good uh, weren't as into skating by the time I got there. But I did see little kids who were really promising. um, We did attend a couple of the women's sessions just to look on. And Mm. those went down at Latrac, which is this bar that has a... kind of mini ramp bowl thing in the back and some of the girls were really good at like pumping around the bowl uh could drop in i maybe saw one or two rock fakies while i was there uh but it was just kind of a natural comfort with transition that was you know instinctive which was really cool to see Mm. yes i think all sorts of news and almost too much news has been going on i think max can you kind of like frame the uh refugee crisis and just you know the mass migration that (laughs) despite despite the pandemic and civil unrest over here like it's it's an ongoing thing you know people are still fleeing syria and the war in afghanistan right yeah yeah definitely that's a it's a good way to put it that you know with the pandemic and all this news that kind of captures our attention there's been less media attention focused on the refugee crisis but like you say it hasn't you know, it's still completely going on. It hasn't even passed its peak in Mm -hmm. Greece. It's still getting worse. Uh, Just between 2018 and 2019, there was a 400% increase in refugees arriving to Greece by sea. Um, And that's, you know, not something that I knew before I got there. So I'm going to actually read a snippet of an essay that Amber wrote um, about conditions in Greece because she phrased it better than I could. But She's basically talking about the path for most refugees coming across the Mediterranean. And most people get to the islands first, and they're put in one of the island camps before they can make it to the mainland. Uh, One of these camps is on Lesbos. It's called Moria. And I'm going to read something Amber wrote about it. She says, Moria camp on the island of Lesbos is one of the most desperate examples of life for refugees in Greece. Moria has a capacity of 3,100. With 3,100 residents or fewer, everybody has adequate access to food, shelter, and water. Moria now has more than 20,000 inhabitants. Most of these people have no choice but to live in the fields around the camp where there is no electricity or running water. There they wait for access to the things they need to keep their families alive, for a chance to leave to the mainland or anywhere else, for someone to care and do something. They are trapped and have no choice but to wait in an inhuman, dangerous, and degrading situation. Many refugees endure Moria's horrendous conditions for more than a year before being transferred to mainland Greece. There are hours-long lines for food and medical care. The electricity in the camp is unreliable. 
And many minors who make up about 40% of the camp's population and women wear diapers at night to avoid going to the toilets where there's a high risk of being stabbed or sexually assaulted. So that's one little window into mm-hmm. uh, one piece of the crisis. And mm-hmm. in some ways, the islands are are the epicenter of the crisis or are the place where that desperation is most visible. Uh, but it doesn't always get better on the mainland. Um, camps on the mainland, most of them are in better shape than Moria, uh, but they're severely underfunded and overcrowded. Part of this is that Greece is still in a brutal economic crisis. You guys may know they're about 300 billion euros in debt, and this has resulted in really harsh austerity deals with the European Central Bank and the International Monetary Fund. So again, from Amber's essay, this stagnant economy is unable to support its own citizens, creating poverty and feeding power to one of Europe's most violent ultra-right-wing groups, Golden Dawn, which uses the refugee crisis as the scapegoat for Greece's current economic woes. Far from being a fringe group, Golden Dawn had become a popular fascist political party even before 2015, especially among police. According to Greek newspaper Tovima, some districts saw more than half of Greek officers vote Golden Dawn in the 2012 election. So this is kind of, it's a, uh, it's too much just to, to summarize all of it for a podcast, but these are kind of the, the main points that I would pick out are the conditions on the islands, the state of Greece's economy, and how these factors are producing these super violent right-wing nationalist groups. Yeah. Uh, much the same as in other countries across the world. Yeah, I guess um, kind of kind of one follow up <laughs> or the front of mind question. Then you have like your your story for Veg has a pretty vivid lead introduction, you know, about riot cops in riot gear and all that. Is it as intense over there as it sounds, or you know, what what was it like being on the ground? Like I say, I was I was surprised by how many armored police I saw. I think uh, in my American ignorance, I had kind of thought of that as an American phenomenon. I was always hearing about how uh, police in many European countries weren't armed or weren't as militarized as American police. So yeah, I mean, I was shocked to see guys with with riot shields and assault rifles on the streets uh, in Greece. And um, in some neighborhoods, they would be you know, every few blocks there would be a group. That being said, it wasn't like I felt personally like I was under constant uh, police surveillance or anything like that. We were kind of able to go about our lives. On the weekends when we weren't teaching sessions, uh, yeah, we would go Skate Street, and I found that we got kicked out less often than we would in most American cities. And, you know, there are people there uh, living fairly normal lives. It's not like it's a completely totalitarian existence, but it's definitely one of the first things that you notice if you stay there for more than a few days. There's been a lot of unrest um, over the last couple of years because of the economic crisis. And there's also still some vestiges of the uh, dictatorship that was there in the 1960s. You know, Greece joined the European Union after um, reintroduced democracy in the early 70s after the war with Cyprus, or excuse me, the war with Turkey over Cyprus, and there was um, there is technically a law uh, law on the books in Greece that 
soldiers are not permitted on university campuses, and this is something that goes back to the coup in 1967, the military coup in 1967. And, you know, that law has been, it's been enforced and then it's been repealed, enforced and it's been repealed. And last year it was very recently repealed. And, you know, there's still, you know, even though it is, at least on paper, a democracy and a member of the, the European Union and also within the Eurozone, there's still, um, there's still a lot of civil tension and it's really, you know, it's really illuminating uh, hearing you talk about this and, you know, setting um, this refugee story against that kind of, you know, very, very, very volatile backdrop. Um, you know, it's something that's very, very unique. I mean, of all, all the countries that got hit the hardest by the, uh, by the 2008 financial crisis and the subsequent crash, it seems like Greece has never really found its footing, you know, hasn't really found its footing and continues to suffer. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. And the convergence of all those things, the repealing of the university asylum law uh, and the refugee crisis and the lingering effects of the financial crash of 2008 all converged in this neighborhood called Exarchia, which is a historically anarchist neighborhood that for years was um, almost operating independently uh, from the rest of the city police wouldn't go in because uh, a lot of it is university campuses and it was kind of a safe zone for refugee squats. Uh, but since New Democracy, which is Greece's center-right leadership, was elected last August, almost a year ago, mm-hmm. um, like you say, that law has been repealed and Exarchia has become less of a safe haven uh, because many of the squats have been evicted. And these squats are in buildings that were schools or government buildings that were abandoned after the financial crash um, as public budgets kind of disappeared and uh, schools were consolidated. You know, you might have the kids from what was formerly two schools in one building. So there are all these mm-hmm. abandoned buildings and there are no plans to use them for anything. But yeah. these were the sites of these squats that have been, you know, evictions have been hugely ramped up in the last year since New Democracy took power. Yeah, and that's a place that you guys <clears throat> that you guys used as as your um, a place where you had your skate lessons. And I was wondering, like, you know, why why skateboarding? You know, it seems like these guys have uh, a lot of like practical needs. So, like, why go there and teach skateboarding? Yeah, great question. This is probably the first question that a lot of people ask me if they hear that I've gone to volunteer somewhere. They're like, "Oh my God, what were you doing? Were you distributing food? Were you?" passing out medicine. Oh, you were skateboarding? Why that? And it's a great question. So there's basically tiers of uh, crisis response. There's the first, you know, the most immediate thing, which is just pulling people out of the water, being out in a boat in the Mediterranean and pulling people out of the water and bringing them to shore. Then there's the people there who are giving them blankets, food, etc. And then way, way down the line, there's development, which is providing um, recreation, and programs for kids, uh, giving kids a safe and structured place and time to play. And it's not as immediate as, uh, as pulling people out of the water, which is, of course, you know, hugely important. Nothing else can happen without that. But it is, recreation is important. And trauma is really serious, you know, and things like this, having space to to express yourself, to be kind of in control of your own time um, and to be active and creative is super important for that. So there are really limited 
extracurricular programs for kids in the camps. And what free movement does is it tries to provide a, a program for them. You know, kids in many countries have the option to go to after school programs, but you know, there aren't many for, for refugee children. So that's what free movement tries to do. Another thing um, that was more true for the full-time staff and less true for the volunteers that are only there for a month is that skating develops a, a trusting relationship between the kids and the staff. You know, the staff are the people who are there wiping the kids' bloody knees, you know, helping them up when they fall, telling them, hey, you need to lean forward more when you try to drop in. And Amber would tell me about how she could build a relationship with a kid because the kid would say, uh, how do I drop in? And Amber would say, lean forward. And the kid would, wouldn't lean forward and would slip out and wipe out. And then Amber would say, see, you have to lean forward. And then they would do it successfully. And then they would know that she, you know, that she was right, kind of, that, they, that she knew something. That would be the basis for uh, a relationship that she could then use to discuss adolescence, body boundaries, healthy relationships, all this other stuff that the staff kind of try to provide a space to talk about. As far as my own choice to do skate volunteering as opposed to something else, you know, I've never built a house. I don't have medical background, even in just passing out pills. I've never given someone else a shot. So I wouldn't want to go over there with these grand ambitions only to end up getting in the way. You know, I want to be able to hit the ground running and skating and working with kids are two things I already know how to do. So I felt that's how I could be most helpful in that setting. Digging in a little bit deeper into that, talking about that trauma, um, war and crisis and having to, you know, having to become a refugee are very, 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 very difficult things for anybody to process, but especially children. On one hand, uh, kids are very resilient and in an ideal situation, they don't ask too many questions. They understand that something is beyond their scope of understanding, but they know they just have to do what their parents or their relatives or whoever is uh, helping them go from one country to the next, uh, what they're supposed to do. But I mean, how do you deal with some of the deeper uh, emotional trauma that sets in once they are within a refugee environment, when they're in a refugee camp or they are coming and um, skating with you or just, you know, observing them in in a foreign country, um, kind of waiting and hoping for some kind of settled status? I mean, that must be incredibly difficult. and. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this was the subject of the training we got as soon as we arrived in Greece. It was like, okay, maybe you guys have worked with kids before, but if you haven't worked with refugee kids, you need to know that uh, if they're not listening to you or if they're fighting with each other or whatever, displaying this so-called, you know, quote unquote, difficult behavior, it's not because they're bad kids. It's because that is a natural response to trauma. You know, trauma can create restlessness impulsivity, frustration with rules and restrictions. Uh, and we would see this. We would see kids who are kind of constantly alert, you know, or really high strung as a result to the state that they had to be in on their journeys. And it was almost like a ADHD thing. You know what I mean? Where you're trying to get a kid to listen to, to an instruction or something, but they, you know, they don't have time for it, whatever. And the way that we were taught to deal with that is not to yell you know, not to do anything else to trigger, potentially trigger their fight flight response or trigger some kind of trauma response, but just to be firm, to be patient and to be nice and, and say what you mean. Uh, and I can't emphasize enough how, despite everything these kids have been through, you know, I met some of the most good natured kids that, that I've known over there, you know, uh, especially 
what we saw. We only saw them when they were really stoked to skate. Um, and they were genuinely really, you know, happy to to get rolling. And it's not like they were, you know, constantly just fighting with one another or whatever. I don't want to give that kind of impression because they really were very sweet and respectful kids for the most part. What was it like uh, communicating? How, how did that work out? Yeah. So most of the kids spoke enough English to get by. Um, okay. I... Yeah, I, I just talked about how I felt useful there because I know how to skate and I like kids. One way in which I didn't feel useful is that I don't speak any Greek uh, or Arabic or Farsi or Urdu. So it was sometimes I would have to uh, call over one of the full-time free movement staff, all of whom speak passing Greek, to communicate something to a kid. And we did learn a few words. We would learn the... Uh, of course, I can't remember any of it now, but we learned the word for finished. You know, that's what you say when the session's over and all the kids have to return their boards. Or like, uh, oh, is it the is it the bigs or the littles today? In some of the sessions in the camps, it would be divided by age, you know, and on Tuesdays, it would be under nine. And on uh, Thursdays, it would be nine to 12 or whatever. So we would be able to tell them um, which session it was. But... Yeah, it was it was it often went down either through an older kid who spoke English or through a free movement staff member. Max, like so if somebody wants to volunteer with free movement skate, what what do they have to do? Yeah, so I think right now things are different. They're not taking international volunteers for obvious reasons. But I think there is a contact button on their website if you want to get in touch, figure out when international volunteer applications will be open again their website is just freemovementskateboarding.com and you can find the contact info on there and then the application is just like a few essay questions uh, or like you know blurb response questions and if you've done any kind of other skate volunteering in the past like for example SkatePal shares all of their uh, volunteer data with free movement so if you've already been approved to volunteer for SkatePal uh, free movement will trust that you know you're able to do the job and whatever Real quick, um, is uh, is free movement strictly in Greece, or what's the yeah. scope? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just the one project in Athens um, started by Will Ascot and Ruby Mateja. I forget when exactly. Within the last five or six years, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and then, so for regular skaters who want to raise awareness about the plight of refugees, what do you suggest they do? Um, those who can't travel or volunteer themselves, where can they start educating themselves and or contributing funds. Yeah, so definitely donate to Free Movement if you're able. Um, the first thing you'll see on their website is a donate button. It's also at the bottom of my vague article if you find that through this podcast. And as far as education goes, you know, the refugee crisis isn't really making front page news for a lot of American news outlets or United States news outlets these days. But if you seek out stories about it. The New York Times does cover it. I think The Guardian does a really good job of covering it, as does Al Jazeera. So if you look for the stories, it's it's not too hard to stay abreast of what's happening there, although it can be emotionally taxing to read about it all, all the time. Yeah. You heard it first. Cut those checks. Take some of that stimulus money. That's right. Trump bucks straight to Greece. <laughs> all day, every day. <laughs> Do it for the kids. <laughs> And I just I just want to say, Max, I really enjoyed this story, which was like, I mean, we're all spending a ton of time at home. So it's it's as much it, travelogue. Is that not quite the right word? But it, it, it was it was an interesting 
escape from from my day to day, and I enjoyed it a lot. So thanks for doing it. Yeah, I'm glad. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, guys. listeners, go out and uh, read read Max's article. It'll be linked in the show notes, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah, so check it out. Um, and speaking of Greece, which resides in Europe, uh, fuck, what a terrible transition. <laughs> I like. That. <laughs> um. We'll just fucking smash into it. Uh, I, I say keep the transition. That keep was, the transition. That was fantastic. We'll just just we'll it's, just leave the whole it's, fucking it's the thing. Cradle. It's the cradle of European culture, bro. <laughs> cradle of democracy, civilization. <laughs> but they not did quite, that. Not quite the cradle of skateboarding, um, but uh, it, uh, maybe a modern cradle of skateboarding is Europe. Um, Modder's Ops dropped a new part in DC's Domino this week, which got us all thinking about Euro pros and their ascension amongst the ranks of skateboarding elite. Uh, not long ago, Europeans were relegated to regional sub-teams with little hope of reaching the world stage and getting onto the global team. Nowadays, Europeans are everywhere, fully on big companies and starting their own successful brands outside the U.S. market. Um, Patrick, what do you think of Modder's new part? I thought it was really dope. Um, I didn't love the music, but the skating was super on point. I know some people thought it was a bit gimmicky, but you know what? I got a lot of time for that. I really loved that, that um, <laughs> like the nose bonk, uh, nollie heel out on the fire hydrant. I like that. It's like his yeah. control, um, his trick selection. Um, it, like it was, it's like, you know what? The man, he straddled the fine line between Instagram gimmicky and day one dopeness. And I love that, you know, he's just like, he's just, he's just threatening to go over that line and to just like, uh, you know, throw it onto the explore page. Um, and it was fun. I think that's the other thing too. It doesn't, it doesn't seem as though, and there are some skaters who do that type of, um, I guess, gimmicky skating. There's just something about them that, uh, there's something about him rather. Um, like you could tell he's having fun. Like he, he's flexing with it. He, he's, he's really enjoying himself and, and it's been, I was a little skeptical at first, but it's actually been really dope that DC has been trickling out this video because it keeps reminding us like, oh, DC put out a new video uh, part by part. And it's been fun. Like that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little late to the party with, um, you know, that kind of slow release. But you know what? I'm here for it. What about y'all? Mike, what do you think about the slow release? I feel like you've got a differing opinion there. <laughs> for one thing, I keep wondering if we're going to get a Kalis part out of it. But um, I think when it first realized that it was going to be like a week by week type thing i was pretty skeptical but now what are we four weeks in a month in three weeks in it's kind of working just because you know what like everything's slowing down everything's really focused so yeah I, I've, I've i've changed my tune on on that release pattern and i think as far as templeton did you did you consult with the element europe gm I, I i can't remember how you got our other buddy's name the proper uh pronunciation oh i i didn't do Dilly a name Bester? no a name check on okay. uh on uh the pronunciation of modder's uh name i feel like i've heard it in like was he on king of the road one time yeah oh, yeah yes. he was yes he was okay yeah yeah so I, i'm okay with the pronunciation even though i'm probably butchering the like actual latvian pronunciation but I, I think mean, we need uh, Jacobo, Jacobo, to really get your pronunciation flowing. <laughs> but um, I, 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 hard to Italian. <laughs> sure. um, I do agree with Patrick. Like, there's contrived 
for some of those explore page heroes is a real word, but like somehow he makes the goofy. I think goofy's fair. A 50-50 handstand is pretty goofy, but like he mixes that goofiness with straight up hard, high skilled tricks like backside nose grind reverts on handrails. And yeah, it was it was real. That I, I want to hear him. What's that? Oh, that, what? That board slide. You know the one. The daffy board slide. I think we can uh, do better than one footed. Um, <laughs> Max, being being the uh, of a different generation than us. What what's your take? Uh, yeah, I liked it. I was not a big fan of the Ender. Um, I think someone said in the notes that it should have been a credits trick. Jammed a crook on the rail was the real Ender. And that would be the yeah. handstand oh, of the credits trick. Yep. I think that's a good take. Um, overall, I like what Matters does. Because uh, like you say, it's kind of um, all the skills of a banger stair skater with the, the creativity of an insta-kid. And I think his goofiness honestly works. Like, if he were just skating really hard, the way, like, how goofy he looks and the way he dresses would distract me. But it actually goes super well with the tricks. <laughs> so, yeah, I was a fan. And, yeah, you mentioned the one-foot board slide. I thought the other board slide, the one, um, like, over the parallelogram in the rail, yeah. you know what <laughs> I mean, where he goes over that triangle diamond oh, thing, yeah. was Ooh. really sick and impossible to think about trying. Risking yeah, I mean, it. with that one, it's like that takes like skill and like uh, a certain amount of daring to even attempt and like get over that. And I feel like you know the Instagram skater or like explore page skater like wouldn't step to something like that. You know, like their shit is a little more tame, I guess, and it's more it's more about the trick. Maybe I don't know, it, but the you know modders in the street. He can do a dope switch heel down a fat stack of stairs, and he can board slide over this fucking diamond thing. <laughs> One thing I will say on the subject of this DC video in InstaKids is that Tiago Lopez had a couple tricks in one of the montages. He's a Insta Tiago, the kid who would do like ah. raily late laser flip or whatever, all that stuff where he just kind of, you know, throws the board at something and it <laughs> does a crazy big heel or whatever, and he lands back on it. He had two tricks in this video, and it was a tray flip down a huge set of stairs and then a backside flip down a different huge set of stairs. So I feel like he's seen a lot of that criticism of him as just an insta-skater, just a goofy explore page skater, and decided to show us in this video that he can do the real stuff too, which was disappointing to me because I was looking forward to some <laughs> funky bonks. <laughs> I don't know. You know what? It's, it's growth. Is taking constructive criticism and acting on it and building it. So I salute. <laughs> and that might be a, um, you know, a decision made by the editor and not necessarily by Tiago. You know, like this guy's like, all right, you can keep doing your wacky biggie heels on uh, on your Instagram page, but this DC video is going to have some, you know, <laughs> some uh, aesthetically pleasing maneuvers. <laughs> Speaking of, okay. That's that's the door that I needed opened. <laughs> I, I think I'm uh, the jammed a crook. Seems like we got some fans. But I I gotta admit I don't really get that trick from the point of view of like it's incredibly hard, mm -hmm. but I just don't understand it as a trick. Maybe on a ledge or on a rail. On the rail on the the yeah. Ronnie Bertino San Diego rail where he and I think 
Max, you pointed out that, oh, geez, we get another name that we never say out loud. We only have to read it. Karangalov. Thank you. That's how I say it. In my Karangalov. The, the, like, jam over the back of the rail, mm-hmm. up the back of the rail sometimes to crooked grind down. And I feel like maybe a Nick Garcia has done that, too. Yeah. There's a certain rail in Southern California that's, like, bent. Where yeah. It's, like, you know, uh, friendly to the Wally to grind on the handrail. I think I think that's been seeing some action lately. What's yeah, troubling you about that trick, though? Oh, you know what I think it is? Is that it's just really counterintuitive. Maybe it's just my narrow mindset where, like, I would never, ever think of doing that trick myself just because it's, like, so far off the map. But, I, I you know, saying it, it could have, I mean, because that rail is, you know, it's like a seven-star rail with a straight straight bonk grind straight jam i mean it's yeah. an incredibly difficult trick what's what what is it about that trick that makes it the ender is it just that it's really incredible lee hard i don't know didn't uh i'm trying to think was it Sheffy who did uh like he did a bonk to switch 50 50 in mouse i thought he I just missing? straight up ollie to the yeah, he went over the top on. on that on that same rail yeah Okay, yeah, you're right. Um, maybe I'm thinking about um, one of the Supreme edits or like a Strobeck edit where there's a rail in um, in one of like the super, super colorful park in Manhattan that everybody skates at with there's Columbus a gap between, park. Yeah, Columbus Park between the, the gap between the two basketball courts and there's a rail. I don't know. I'm trying to think, man. Ben Anglin doing yeah. switch over the top. Oh, was it um, Yaje? Yaje Popson in the Transworld video. I think he, did he Wally grind it? Maybe. Not, oh, riddles in mathematics, that one. Yeah, I think he may have done that. Yeah, I can't remember though if he just ollied over. What was it? Switch? I can't remember. Ollied over the top or or pole jammed it. I think definitely ollieing over the top into a grind is more difficult and more scary than pole jamming into it. Yeah. How do you do it? Is it all just core? Do you just like suck up real hard and like just lift your legs and pray for the best? Uh, well, I've never done it on a handrail, but for like. <laughs> Pole jams and stuff. I think it's the same as a wally. You kind of just smash into it, suck your legs up, and resist that instinct to ollie before you hit it. Mm. Yeah, it's like a weighting and unweighting of of each foot, and yeah, it's all just like changing where your weight is. More minimalist, sense. more minimalist than your mind would think going into it. Mm. It's like when uh, when someone's learning how to slappy and you have to teach them to not ollie or like to not lift up their front truck before they get to the curb. I don't know. It's like a weird, you have to trick yourself into not doing the thing that you think you have to. Yeah, I'm still learning that. It's so fun. Somebody told me it's like, it's like, it's just like surfing, man. Just imagine yourself like you're surfing into the curb. <laughs> it makes no sense. And it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that only somebody on the West Coast would explain it to you like that. Because <laughs> like, who? Oh, who are my friends on the East Coast uh, is still surfing, you know? <laughs> like, they're all dedicated. Like, those who are dedicated, like, way out on Long Island super early in the morning, and that water is cold. Yeah, Templeton don't surf. <laughs> I'm reminded of how, like, a bunch of my buddies who are in their 40s who would have scoffed at slappies in their more fresh, <laughs> young days have recently been getting getting pretty excited about doing slappies. Because they look cool. Yeah, yeah, I... My buddy tried to teach me the other day. First try, he was he was he was um, extolling the virtues of the four wheel slide. You know that you actually power slide into it. And the first one, both trucks on, and I think I was surprised. And then nothing close after that. <laughs> Have you tried slappy crooks? I feel like that's a good like bridge trick from like 
fresh ledge skater to curb skater. Yeah, yeah that's definitely the easiest slappy, mm-hmm. I think. Definitely learned crooks that way at the Wells Fargo by Knollwood Bank out here. But um, link yeah, in the show I, notes. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll send you the <laughs> drop pin. a pin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that that oh, I don't know that crook leverage anymore. It it seems like I'd slam a couple times and maybe rethink trying it. No, uh, what of what of the larger topic here though? We've got uh, Maters. God, I I'm so oh. scared of pronouncing it. I looked it up the other day. He's 30. And in yeah. my mind, the ability to like, I don't know, he's, he, he seems like he's got a skate career that I'd be into having had myself, where it's like a little US exposure, but mostly doing his thing in Europe. Seems generally like the spots are more chill. Like what, what, what is the power of the European pro? I think there's a couple of things that's happened over the last 25 years, right? Jumping into the Wayback Machine. In the mid-1990s, if you wanted to make it in skateboarding, you had to come to Southern California. That's why uh, Soltech or Etnies came over here. That's why the guys from Flip came over here. And that's why, you know, a slow trickle of European, excuse me, of European pros started coming to the U.S. and getting footage and staying as long as they were allowed to, right? And in some cases, uh, if you were good enough to get sponsored and let's say your company or your distributor had enough money, they could sponsor you for, uh, they could sponsor your visa to actually come here and actually be able to earn money, right? Um, I think a lot of things changed on both ends. In terms of legal apparatus in, in Europe, it was the... Uh, 1993 Maastricht Treaty, which established the European Union and the subsequent expansions of the EU, uh, the removal of borders, right to free movement of workers, uh, freedom of establishment so that you could go and start a business anywhere in Europe, right? Um, The rise of low-cost airfare on the continent over there, right? And uh, over here in the U.S., I think it was, I think it was social media giving people exposure to what was happening uh, abroad. Uh, instantaneous exposure, especially uh, with Instagram and with YouTube, um, and then also distributors. I mean, we have we should big up theories because they were the initial distro point for Polar and for Palace, and they're still distributing Magenta. So now you had a legitimate inroads for people to actually get their you know get their gear over here. Um, and I think another thing too is that um, people have shown that they can be successful outside of the United States, right? Because it used to be that you had to be in the U.S. You had to be pumping out footage. And once a couple of people broke through that barrier, Tom Penny was one of the first, you know, when he dipped back to France where his mother was living um, in a place called uh, Saint-Victor-Dordogne, which is not too far. It's about two hours northeast of Bordeaux. And he kept putting out footage. Um, in fact, he actually started putting out more footage than he had in that cup, that little lost window um, where he wasn't really, you know, there was, really wasn't much of him. And then, like, uh, I would say Bastien Salabonzi, who came here as a teenager with Flip and then, you know, was kind of having a a bit of a rough go of it with the management at Flip about wanting to spend more time, you know, with his family, buddies with the guy. You know, he's very close with his brothers and his mom. And, you know, he's, you know, he went back to France and, you know, he met his, you know, baby mother. They have two kids, you know, and he ended up having to start all over again, sponsor-wise, and eventually was able to come back via Street League and then did Primitive. But, you know, he showed that he was still performing at a, and still is performing at a very, very high level. And lots of other people have been doing that. And also, it just like cost-wise, it makes sense. You know, doing legal, doing the legal paperwork for sponsoring somebody to come to the U.S. on an O or a P visa is very expensive. Yeah, I feel like um, 
the Bastion example is interesting as like he's a little bit earlier than somebody like Amaters and where it was like important to be in California, but um, you know currently it's not that important. Nope. And I, I feel like Amaters is kind of like a bridge um, between those generations because he he was on Element Europe. He was you know kind of doing the thing of like kind of working your way through that farm team and then he he made it on to the the global team came out to the u.s for a little bit i don't think he spent a ton of time out here um mm -hmm. and then yeah now he's just fully globe trotting fully you know internationally known and respected pro shout out to lucas puig who has only done uh trips to the u.s he's never he's never lived out here he talks about that in his Jenkum interview and that's pretty powerful because he's on Palace, he married, he got a kid. He's 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 been amazing for a long time. And I think also I think the other thing too is um you you know what? I think the other thing is that once people realized that you could live a very very high quality life, have great skating with relatively little interruption compared to having to duck security guards and cops in the US, and you could do that in cities like Lisbon or Barcelona, Milan, Frankfurt, Berlin, London. You know, you're just like, yo, why should I be, you know, trying to eke out a living in San Francisco or LA or New York? Let me go actually have some adventure and have some fun and also skate some stuff that people never seen before. Yeah, I mean, like talking about that, it's like, why why would anybody move to the United <laughs> States for a skate career? Like at this point with like the media being so splintered and also um, open to you know far-flung skaters like moving to la would be like a like career suicide almost <laughs> you're like France, you know like <laughs> like imagine if um i don't know somebody what if the blobbies got a house in la like that'd be fucking terrible well, they'd, be no, they'd be nobodies it's like oh dude like a bunch of uh, euro dudes like just hanging out in la doing their thing on social media yeah take a number there, there's so many skaters where, like, I was just thinking of, like, the only place acceptable where I want to see Lucas footy that is in North America is, like, Santa Monica Sand Gaps. Otherwise, like, you're bummed. Well, maybe New York City. But you're bummed if certain skaters, you know, show up in some schoolyard. Like, there's no need for it because they've got way more dope spots <laughs> on the other side of the ocean. It's, yeah. Yeah, I think it speaks to a, a broader shift away from the kind of all tour footage model of skate videos where you're like, whoa, can't wait for fully flared and see all the crazy plazas they discovered in China or whatever, you know <laughs> what I mean? And towards like, I want to see someone skating in the city where they grew up. I want to see someone skating spots that they know that they're comfortable with, preferably that aren't already really famous and blown out. And I think that kind of... Uh, that search not only for new spots to watch, but also for people skating spots where they look comfortable, where it's not like, oh God, I got to get this flip in, flip out before the plane leaves tomorrow. It just feels much better and much more relatable to people consuming skate videos. Mm -hmm. Also healthcare. If you live in a country with universal healthcare or, you know, free at, um, or free healthcare, why on earth would you come to the U.S. and blow out your ACL or bust your ankle or, you know, fracture your wrist? And, you know, think about how many horror stories there are in sponsored skating. It's like, oh, he just he messed up his knee and then he couldn't get the surgery and then he just hung on and just boom, career just kind of fizzles out. I mean, it's not worth the risk. 
No, especially when you've got that other option. You know, it seems downright irresponsible. Yeah, and also, you know what? I think the other thing too is that um, the skate media has uh, is much much more open to it. It's it's international footage is no longer just relegated to the margins or like you had mentioned earlier, tour footage. It's you know it's uh, a foundational part of a video. It's a foundational part of uh, of what is you know what's being broadcast out there. And yeah, the if there is one reason to come to California, it's because the majority of the industry still is here. FaceTime really does count for something. Um, but, you know, skateboarding is, you know, it's diversifying. There's lots of different types of skating. Um, you know, was it Lev from Palace talked about, you know, I want, he, he said he wanted to do something where, um, you know, just him and his boys could do something for fun and just see what happens and just put out whatever, do something that spoke to them. And they said that the, the primary goal of doing Palace was that I just want to get these guys paid so they can continue skating however they want they want to skate, not how somebody in some far-off place in Southern California or Northern California tells them how to skate. Um, I think there was also there was also some friction too, right? Like there was a period where there were folks who were feeling like um, uh, they weren't getting a fair shake despite the fact that they were carrying a brand in their home country. Um, and that kind of resentment is real. Well, um... I remember a certain Lord's Wheels video called They Don't Give a <laughs> Give a Fuck About Us. And yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. exactly it. And maybe this is more... I don't, it, it, it almost seems irreverent. It, it, I, I have this idea stuck in my head. How much does the difference, like the lack of PAL video conversion play in this? Yeah, I, I think that's huge. <laughs> Just, I mean, no, no, I mean, like I can't tell. Like Maybe it's a, not like, necessarily book where that's the secret ingredient sorry templeton go ahead yeah i mean maybe not necessarily like the pal uh ntsc you know divide but i think just the the way it's so easy to disseminate footage now through the internet before it had to be like a tape or a dvd and you had to like Mm -hmm. wonder how am i going to get puzzle number 17 to see you know whoever i can't think of a random european pro at the the top of my head yeah, region yeah. one, region two. And hey, don't forget about Ccam. Don't forget about Ccam. Fuck, I don't think my DVD player has that many like switch switch options. <laughs> no, you're right. That actually that was a big deal because it was. Um, I remember there's a. Um, oh yeah, there's a French podcast called Big Spin, and Stéphane Laurence was on it, and he was talking about how tapes just kept getting passed around, passed around, passed around because it was just so rare to get a skate video in france you know to you know at that time it was so difficult i mean now it's like dog you jump on youtube you jump on instagram i mean you get on twitter you can find skate footage yeah it's on your phone everything is so easily accessible yeah it's like a a flattening of the earth like everybody's on like a level playing field now Mm -hmm. big spin by the way is a great podcast name yeah awesome (laughs) shout out to those guys also you know what another thing another thing too is um uh, this jumps back to my earlier point. Uh, low-cost airfare is not just uh, an EU thing like Ryanair and uh, EasyJet. Also, you know, there was, a, you know, in the U.S., especially for millennials, Gen Z, those of us, you know, we can't afford to buy houses, you know, but you could get like a, a decently cheap ticket. And also Airbnb is making it a little bit easier to go get a spot. You get a bunch of people, you know, you go get a skate house, something like that. You get, a, you get an apartment, get four or five buddies and... You know, you could scrape together enough money to have a cool vacation, 
you know, on uh, off-peak fair and be like, hey, we're going to Barcelona in March. It might rain, it might not, but hey, you know, we'll have a good time regardless. That's also opened up a lot of Americans' eyes to what's out there. And that's really, you know, I think that's really leveled the playing field a bit. I think another thing, too, is we could use New York and Philly as examples, right? There was a period before Eastern Exposure where it would be career suicide to be like, oh, I'm in L.A., I'm going to go, or San Francisco, I'm going to go back to New York City. After those videos, the rise of all those East Coast pros, and then was that like when Dill moved to New York City, when Muska was living in New York for a year, and I think it was 90, summer of 90, yeah, starting in 1999, hmm. like, game changed. Like, whereas beforehand, it was unthinkable. It made no sense. There were no filmers or no photographers. How are you going to get this done? Now, if you said, like, oh, hey, I'm going to be, I'm moving to New York, deal with it. Your boss would be like, all right, team manager would be like, all right, word. We'll yeah, they'd be, up. like, stoked. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be way better than you being here in Southern California. Yeah, exactly. Get off my couch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's just like it's a gradual thing. I mean, we saw it with we saw it with Brazil, you know, we saw it with Brazil in the 1990s. I mean, you know what, though, there are still I feel like there are so many guys in Brazil right now who are at or above the level of the average pro sleeping on a couch in Long Beach who are not getting any recognition and i know this because i watched uh slides and grinds religiously and there are guys on there who i have never heard of and every single person on that show can do switch front blunt first try that trick has never been missed <laughs> that's not a fact but um <laughs> but like there's i don't know there's stuff on there there's guys who can do the craziest ledge tricks first try with so much style uh who i'm sure are you know legends in their hometowns the best skaters in their the cities in Brazil that they're from who just are not getting exposure or I assume money on the on the grand scheme um, or the international level at all. So there's still yeah, it's sick to see how expanded the possibilities have become for pro skaters from only, you know, you have to live in L.A. to you can live most places in the U.S. or in Europe. But I feel like there are still places where the very best skaters are just widely unknown. Yeah, yeah. It's like with soccer with Brazil. It's just like there's a certain flair. There's a certain style. It's just, man, I don't know. I, I think that maybe within the next decade, you might see the axis really start to shift and companies maybe go a little bit more global or skating just become more and more decentralized. I mean, it's kind of happening, but it's still, you know, it's still very California centric. But you might get to a point where there might be a bunch of cats and uh, Brazil, Argentina, and Chile are just like, yo, we should do a thing down here. We should try and get people to come down here. Let's get some of our own products out. You know, let's 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 blow up. Let's do like what Europe did. And then you know, same thing is happening in Africa. Slowly but surely, cats are building their own DIY parks. They're because of social media, because of high speed internet, people are connected to skate culture. It's growing. It's growing. It's growing. It's growing. And also, you know, with, with Asia too. I mean, who knows? I mean, think about think about where skating was ten years ago, ten years ago globally, right? And think of how different it is in 2020. You know, 2030, it's going to be on some mm. other shit, straight up. I, yeah, I, I think that we're going to see like a total decentralization of skateboarding, and yeah, probably the next decade because all the products come from China. You know, like there was a time mm -hmm. when all the wood shops were in California, or you know in the states anyway and now yeah it's all coming from china so it's easy to set up an operation anywhere in the world and just get your boards made in china from one of the factories and sent to you know 
your network of distributors all over the world or just you know to your warehouse wherever you happen to live yeah, yeah i think the brazil blow up like that 2030 that seems like a good good target date for when yeah paradigm shift yeah. i also gonna think take over that, i mean <laughs> they're ready and, and willing i'm sure mm-hmm. um you do you, you some of the more progressive isn't exactly the word i want to use but like maybe forward thinking brands i mean you look at primitive and you look at april and i know you know people have mixed feelings about their strategies but like primitive's got pros from all over the planet (laughs) pretty literally as does you know april is also poised to have people from you know our various continents and um i think that's really kind of the correct way to approach it Mm -hmm. i mean cover all your bases yeah which goes back to another point um about distribution the master treaty and the removal, you know, the freedom of movement in the EU meant that, or means that, it's much easier to manufacture things in lots of different countries. And the quality of manufacturing has gone up, right? So over the years, people have gotten better at, you know, wood shops have gotten better at making boards. International wood shops have gotten better at making boards, right? Gotten better at making wheels, right? You're still buying trucks from the US, but everything else you can do in-house. That's a game changer, which means that you can have a company in France, your board shop is, say, I don't know, you could have one in France, you could have one in Czech Republic, you could have one in Portugal, you could have your clothes made in Portugal or Spain, you could have your warehouse in whatever town that you're in, right? And you are able to take advantage of all those economies of scale, right? And still be able to have a, a real functioning business, right? It's just like, it's, it's instantaneous. And technology has made it so that the communication is much, much easier. So, I don't know, I mean, like... I'm not sure what the what's happening with Mercosur in South America these days, but you know if if there was somebody you know if somebody felt so inclined in Brazil or Argentina, they could be like, yo, let's let's do something like let's get a wood shop together. Let's like let's let's do it big, you know. Let's like let's let's take over the whole continent. I know Brazil has their own like shoe brands and stuff, mm-hmm. um, and some so. licensing stuff too. From like I think DC is very big down there, right? I don't know. I mean, I haven't ventured down there, so I, I you know, don't know from personal experience. I remember watching the Tampa Pro live stream, and they said that Brazil was like their number one, you know, viewing location. So they're out there. Uh, that's sick. Yeah, yeah trail, I'm sure. I'm sure uh, DC is or was huge in Brazil, but I have to imagine that Tiago going to New Balance had some kind of impact on the popularity. Because I feel like when he was on, it was like, you know, he's the national hero. <laughs> you know, I heard that the only reason he went to New Balance was DC initially lowballed him. Oh, fools. They lowballed him, the best <laughs> dude on their damn team. Yeah, you gotta give Tiago anything he wants and more. Oh man! I mean, I, it's a tangent. Not that we don't go on those, but um, DC definitely feels like a different brand without Tiago Lemos on there. Like mm-hmm. that dude was the straw that stirs the drink over there, and they've they've still got some former sodies and all that. But damn, like that 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 video lost some luster without knowing yeah. that you would get three minutes of ill-ass footage yeah you know and and Kalis being the legacy god no disrespect but tiago was that dude he had that juice straight up he was holding that car- he was he was holding that he was carrying that company on his back there's yes, 200 DC was on his back 209 million people live in brazil 
think about that. Two hundred nine million, probably more now, right? This is just off of twenty eighteen. Yeah. Yo, I mean, this guy was repping all of them, and people were buying the shoes. You could have had that. You could have had that. How you? Whole <laughs> nation in legacies and linkses. Whole nation. People just be like, yo, just like DC. We write not Nike, not Adidas, not Vans. DC. We rock DC all day, every day. That could have been y'all, DC. Y'all had that. I'm going to lowball this man. <laughs> again, again. I only heard, but... Uh. Man, I can't believe that. I mean, he, he, only got, he got kicked out of the country for trying to skate, you know what I mean? Like, while he was on DC, and they should get... After that, they should have given him anything he wanted. Exactly. Just like, yo, sponsor this man. What's even the significance of the ring if he can't keep it real? You know? Just like, yo, finesse something. Get that man a green card something, man. Just like, just let him be here permanently, you know? Let him get his own corner office. Come on, man. <laughs> I, I, I am reminded, the same ledge that our guy Mater's backside 50-50 handstand grinded. <laughs> Tiago switch backside tail slid like, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A much better. What's that? A much better maneuver. <laughs> Maybe. No, no, that's right. No, Tiago. You know what Tiago did? Tiago, Tiago. He did. He did. So he he made DC come alive again. It made you feel like it was late '90s, early aughts DC again. My man with the baggy pants, rocking some DCs, doing amazing ledge tricks. You know, superb pop, just like incredible style. Like, what an amazing turnaround for that brand, which was like on some shaky ground for a bit, you know, financially yeah. and also in terms of like the, the amount of cultural capital they held. And all of a sudden, just like, yo, then they got that collaboration with bronze, you know, you got people who are wearing them unironically, you know, it's not like with Osiris with the D3s where people are like, haha, it was a bit of a weird in joke. Nah, people are like, nah, we dead serious. DC was that brand. They bought back drawers. Right. Successfully, yeah. because people understood this is like, yo, this is, you know, this is a legacy brand that still has some capital and we need to build on that. Because you're going to put the stuff on Tiago and it's going to look dope. True. <laughs> now, I guess, like Kevin Billu, is he our standard bear? You already know Matters isn't going to be skating the Lynxes. No way. Oh, Handstand no, grind. No. <laughs> stand grind and the Lynxes <laughs> and the 2XL. That might have <laughs> improved the clip. I don't know. I'm still waiting on this. The balance would be way off. (laughs) (laughs) I'm waiting on the switchback tail handstand on that on that ledge. I need the combo. (laughs) I'm I'm just imagining like I'm I'm photographing the handstand grind, but he's wearing links and all I and all I actually shoot are just the links upside down in the air, just like zoom in. Yeah, Strobeck style. <laughs> that's, that's a job for skate Twitter for sure. Holy cow! Let Strobeck film that trick instead of Chris. <laughs> no, you got to get the second angle. French Fred way up high. You get the soles of the feet, and then you go, you know, cut to the Strobeck. Boom! Dang. Just no one can tell what the trick is. <laughs> exactly. Well, it looks amazing. It's like it's like skateboarding on French New Wave. It's just like no, no, no. It's a it's a vibe. You just got to take it for what it is. Damn, it's we, just we, a food piece. It's not even a trick. Yeah, get get all the skateboard auteurs, like eight of them together to film that. That would be <laughs> Ty Evans gets gets Maters looking at the ledge and the frame goes askew. The cinematographer project, but it's just one trick. <laughs> Yo, oh, exactly. That's, that's a super dope idea, actually. Hey, Transworld, you know where to send the Venmo. <laughs> Concept oh, though, like like you know, the approach to a single clip, man, it's um that's some content I'd watch. Yeah, sure. 30 minutes. 
I'd be stoked on it. Uh, <laughs> Put a stop to this shit. <laughs> All right, we gotta we gotta wrap this shit up. Uh, Mike, what are you stoked you, on this week? You should say that every episode. I am stoked on. I know this is super incredible to be stoked on a Thrasher posted clip, but um, Tea and Biscuits, the mini ramp video, was excellent. Definitely in line with all of my interests. A lot of like tricks that definitely had me whooping out loud. I think one of the guys did a triple blunt. Blunt, ollie to blunt, ollie to blunt, fakie. So that was super good. Um, yeah, go watch the Tea and Biscuits video if you haven't watched it yet. Maybe rewatch it if you have. I love mini ramp skating because I feel like there's, I don't know. <laughs> that video proves that there's still a lot of ground to break. And um yeah, I've always loved even just like the questionable video mini ramp section. I feel like people should do more of that. Um, my other stoked on, which is changing by the minute, though, I, I've got my second rib injury of the year, and it's actually healing a little bit faster than I thought it would. So I'm stoked on that. Patrick, what are you stoked on? Man, I'm stoked on polo jeans, baggy polo jeans, fuzz pedals. Um, we can just set up a, um, a new Shin A fuzz, it's a clone of a Shin A fuzz. It's amazing. It sounds like a uh, colony of bees. I need an explanation workout. of fuzz pedal. Oh, uh, oh it's, uh, Shin A was a Japanese uh, fuzz pedal that was really popular in the 60s and 70s. Good example of it is National Anthem by Radiohead. It's on the bass guitar. Uh, it sounds awesome. <laughs> it's very yeah, in your yeah. face. Like I said, colony of bees. Um, ab workouts. A friend of mine uh, posted like some really good ab workouts. I can I can add the link in the show notes. And uh, Fair Game Skates just dropped an edit called 2020 Vision. Uh, that's my boy Ian out of Baltimore, and his clips are always super fun and interesting story. We used to play music together. Our bands uh, used to play you know pretty frequently, and for ages I didn't know dude skated. Didn't Whoa. know. It wasn't until like right before I moved, uh, you know, I left DC. I was just like, wait a minute, this guy skates. We're gonna be kicking it the whole time. You know, and not just on the the guitar nerd tip, but yeah. So yeah, shout out to him. Shout out to Baltimore. That's rad. Skate Twitter. Yeah. Real life. <laughs> Max, what are you stoked on? I am very stoked on Vincent Huta. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. The Vincent who uh, on Sour who just dropped a new part on Thrasher. He is like, if his style were any lazier, it would be a little bit insulting to the rest of us. But he <laughs> perfectly is towing that line right now where he does all the tricks I want to see and all the tricks I could never expect to see. Um with that perfect laid back style. Like he doesn't really care, but like he still cares enough to film seven minutes of footage or whatever. So very hyped on him. That part was amazing. Can't wait to see more in the future. Yeah, that was great. Uh, Templeton, what are you stoked on? I am stoked on the Amazon original uh, series, Hannah, which is based on a movie called Hannah. The movie stars Saoirse Ronan, like one of her first uh, roles that I ever saw. Has a super good soundtrack from the Chemical Brothers. And anyway, the Amazon series is based on the movie. The first season is kind of like an extended telling of the film. And then the second season builds on that story. And it's fun. Um, it's like, the story is Hannah is like a CIA engineered super soldier, badass chick who's like trained in like guns and fighting and shit. So fun to watch that. So that's what I'm stoked on. It's just some some good content 
That's it for our show this week. Be sure to check out MostlySkateboarding.net for links to the things that we talked about and other show notes. You can keep up with us online all week. Max, where can the people find you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at low underscore 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 impact, low impact, three underscores. Uh, Where can the people find you, Mike? Ooh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at mmunzenrider. Also got to give a shout to Max down on the bottom of our notes this week. uh, We had a link to the DC Super Euro Tour edit from 1998. He put in the margins that everybody in that video is biting John Shanahan. (laughs) Hell of a joke, buddy. <laughs> I was joking. Just so you know. <laughs> I'm not stupid. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's straight up props here. <laughs> I saw that and it could not go unremarked upon. So. <laughs> Thank you. You're yeah. welcome. John Shanahan, you inspired a generation. <laughs> Crazy how, yeah, even. Anyways, Patrick, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Colonel K Speaks. That's Colonel, like the military rank. Not the popcorn kernel. Instagram, Pikigongo. Catch me in the corner not speaking. I like Ghostface Killer. And uh, <laughs> Templeton, where can the people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Mostly Skate and on Instagram at Mostly Skateboarding. I uh, will see you guys next week. Actually, you won't, yeah. Templeton. Oh, oh, yeah, I won't. Yeah, I'm off next week. <laughs> but tune in yeah. anyway. <laughs>